0: This is the Human Action Podcast, where we debunk the economic, political, and even cultural myths of the days. Here's your
1: host, Dr. Bob Murphy. Well, Paul, welcome to the Human Action Podcast.
0: Well, Bob, it's great to see you. It's been quite a while since two Hillsdale grads sat down and chatted with one another.
1: Yes, you're right. I forgot about that bit of trivia. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The the few and the proud.
0: That's right. It's been a... A busy time. I'm glad that we could do it. In fact, I was just finishing up uh, some of my grades for um, my uh, homeschoolers, right? I ha- we homeschool here, and we have a co-op. And uh, it hurts me to tell you that we use this, uh, this book, uh, Lessons for the, the Young Economist.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. Sadly, it was actually well-written. I'm, a, <laughs> I'm just a little jealous, you know, but, but uh, uh, they did well. They did what, well. what are the age? What age did you use it for? Because people they're, ask me all the time. They're uh, high school students. OK.
1: For people who don't get the the banter, it's because I have a book that was written for younger people called Lessons for the Young Economists that the Mises Institute put out. There's a free PDF and a teacher's guide. So check that out, folks, if you uh, there is indeed. come across it. OK. Well, what we're talking about today is the um, the, the inverted yield curve and the relationship to Austrian economics and the fact that that's relevant right now. Um, So maybe, why don't we start at the top, Paul? Just for somebody who, they've heard people talk about that, but they don't really know, and at this point they're afraid to ask, what does an inverted yield curve mean?
0: Well, um, what's a regular yield curve? Let's let's just start there. Sure, yeah, start there. So um, in Austrian economics, we see that interest rates are created by time preference, both on the supply side and the demand side. And so we have these subjective valuations, but there isn't just one interest rate. And so we typically assume away all these other complexities from real life in order to make our theory go. But in the real world, you can loan money out or borrow money for multiple maturities. So it can be as long as 30 years on a mortgage. It might be shorter 20 years, 10 years, five years. Uh, for a car. Um, In fact, it can be as short as just an overnight, um, you know, loan. And so, these different maturities have different interest rates. And typically, what we see is that the farther out into the future you go, the higher the interest rate. And so, we call this the term structure of interest rates. And when we abstract risk from all of this, and so we're looking at, say, U.S. Treasuries that have uh, currently zero default risk, cause they can always make more dollars. Mm -hmm. Uh, we call that the yield curve. And so the yield curve has the short end, you know, one month, three months tends to be at a lower interest rate than going out to the 10, the 20 and the 30. And so it tends to be upward sloping. Now an an inverted yield curve is when the short-term rates are higher than the long-term rates. And what we see is that whenever this happens, that, um, Four to six quarters on average later, we're in a recession. And so, so that's the, the, the bell that's been ringing for quite some time in order to, um, um, you know, signal what's approaching.
1: Okay, great. So, again, just to paraphrase, make sure we're not lo- losing anybody at the, at the gate here. Uh, a, quote, regular or normal yield curve tends to be upward sloping. And, again, that's just graphing. On the Mm -hmm. x-axis is the maturity, so, you know, the real short, it's, you know, one month, three months, so on, out to 30 years or whatever, and then the y-axis is the actual annualized interest rate, so we're saying, you know, even for a given time period, it's not, obviously you get more total interest for a 30-year loan, but we're even saying that, you know, annualized percentage rate is typically higher on a 30-year loan. So intuitively, like, if you're going to lend money to the government and, they don't have to pay back for 30 years. You're going to want a higher interest rate, other things equal than if you're just lending it to them for a month. All right. So that's the intuition. But absolutely, as you're saying, yeah, so that's what people mean by like a quote normally and that at least since World War II, even earlier, normally like during a regular business expansion period in the economy, yield curves are upward sloping and then but sometimes they flip and the short yes. rates are longer, so in that, like, and that's the case right now. For example, that it is. Uh, do you want to like give some of the number because, or do you sure. do you have on your fingertips?
0: Okay, I do, I do. The, sure. Yeah, um, you want to just tell people the um, uh, the effective Fed funds rate right now, which is the uh, the rate that the the Federal Reserve tries to manipulate, is at five point oh eight right now. Uh, the three month is at five point three. The five year is at 3.49. The 10 is at 3.5. The 20 is 3.9. And then the 30 is down to 3.8. So on the short end, we've got fives. And at the long end, we've got threes. So that's quite a disparity. And right. it hasn't been this inverted since the summer of 1981. And that's right at the beginning of that double dip recession in the uh, beginning of the Reagan administration that we. Uh, Enjoyed so much. Okay, so
1: before we yeah before we get into like the severity of this particular episode, again, just the big picture is the reason people care about this so much. And by the way, and this isn't an Austrian thing. This is like people in mainstream finance know this. People on CNBC where you know people talk about it. And so the pattern is if so long as you define it the appropriate way, like it it can't just be like a the thing inverted for you know twelve minutes or something like for sufficiently long and when you define what do you mean by the spread, so a typical measure is like if you take the 30-year yield minus the three-month yield on U.S. Treasuries and it's of sufficient duration, like like the monthly data, let's say, um, and if it inverts for more than a certain period, then not too long, but you know enough, so it's not just a fleeting thing, then I think it's true to say since World War II, any time that has inverted the way I just defined, what do I mean by saying it inverted, that has always been followed within 12 to 18 months by a recession and every recession was preceded within 12 to 18 months by such an inversion so that it, there's no false positives, no false negatives. Is that, well, you okay with that?
0: <laughs> well, well um, I do use the um, the monthly data because that kind of okay. filters out the noise, right? This daily thing. And, and like the 12 minute thing you just mentioned. So, so looking at monthly data, we we can get around that. Um, so once it kind of inverts, um, it's pretty much the sign. Now there was one false positive in 1967. Um, but we had one quarter of negative growth in that period. And so you kind of need two quarters of negative growth to have an official recession. So the relationship holds, even though there's one false positive, but there hasn't been a recession without an inversion.
1: Okay. Yeah. Right. So even there, the exception that Kind of sort of proves the rule that we had a half a recession if that 's the way you want to t- talk about it, you know it's kind of it, but but yeah, it, so and in in terms of macro relationships and like this is i don 't know of a better indicator than this sort of thing where it's got that kind of a track record absolutely. okay and so, and again, this is like was it Campbell Harvey was the one, or yep. was it Harvey Campbell I forget I forget which which name <laughs> is yeah
0: he's he's over at Duke University and he still teaches there, um, and I think his okay. dissertation was in. Something like 1986.
1: or Okay, yeah, so I knew it was in the mid-'80s. I wasn't mm-hmm. sure, yeah. So he was the one that, like, really quantitatively put this on the... I don't know, do you know, Paul, was this, like, a thing that traders in the pits knew about before he did it, or was this, like, his discovery?
0: You know, it's it's a little bit of of mythology at this point, but I kind of think he... there There might have been some intuition, but he's the one that put it on the map. And as okay, soon as he okay. did that... Uh, the Federal Reserve, under a couple of guys there, really started digging into it in the, the 90s, um, and and that's kind of – but it, it's exploded since then, right? So everyone just kind of knows it at this point.
1: Yeah. Right, right. Like when I came of age in terms of financial markets and stuff, it was just common – now. oh, yeah, inverted yield curve. But when I went back and looked on – yeah, so I knew he was in the mid-'80s that did like a formal mm-hmm. doctoral dissertation on it. Yep. But again, I wasn't sure – you know did he discover this pattern or was his task to give a theoretical underpinning and some rigor to this kind of rule of thumb that everybody in the real world knew
0: about yeah i i i, um, I don't remember the the exact timing okay. you know it's, and
1: it's been a while and so now can you ex- <clears throat> right can you explain paul why do i have you on to talk about this topic
0: um is it the hair
1: no. well besides yeah besides <laughs> obviously that you're photogenic
0: right uh <laughs> Well, it's it's because uh, as as we were going to grad school at roughly the same time, my topic was on the inverted yield curve and economic recessions. So the question I was asking is it is why does an inverted yield curve precede uh, an economic recession? And and so you know if if ever you are you know got a case of insomnia, you know you can go to mises.org. You can pull it up. Uh, it's, it's posted there and 200 and some pages later, put you right to sleep. So, but it's there for yeah. you to take a look at.
1: Right. So, yeah. So notwithstanding the self-deprecation, um, what the situation is so that again, folks, so the, the mainstream people knew about this relationship. And so I think I independently got interested in this. And then I realized that, you know, you did your whole, uh, thesis on it. And so the so since we're coming obviously from the Austrian tradition, it was an interesting mm-hmm. question of, of is why? there you know does this make sense from Austrian theory or is this some spurious you know kind of like oh well government deficits cause GDP to grow up look at World War Two so right yay Keynesian is, and as Austrians we have problems with that very much yeah. where you know so here I was wondering too like are we and and so I think we both independently realized that yes the um, this does make sense with Austrian theory so do you want to talk a little bit about oh, absolutely. That?
0: Yeah, so so to put this in context, right, we have to uh, think about Austrian business cycle theory which begins with artificial credit expansion and this artificial credit expansion lowers interest rates and it creates a need or a desire for those to invest. And so they not just overinvest, but they also malinvest. And that's the key is that they're they're moving resources into the wrong areas of the economy. And when they do this, it puts us in an artificial boom. And so during this artificial boom, you'll have people that say, I can start uh, housing, right? I can build houses. And I think Mises gives uh, an example of a guy with uh, bricks. And so let's suppose there's enough bricks to build four houses. Well, can I start six foundations? I can start six, but do I have enough bricks to complete them? I don't. I only have enough for four. So as... Time goes on I've borrowed the money I'm getting closer to you know built finishing building these houses I run I'm running out of bricks so I need to get more money to get more bricks and so as I go to borrow more money others are also doing the same thing we're all scrambling for resources and so this puts pressure on on interest rates because if I don't finish a house I can't sell anything if I can't sell anything my entire endeavor is worth nothing right it was all for nothing so there's a big, mad scramble um, to, to get these real resources. And so the credit crunch, which is the third phase of the, uh, the business cycle, either comes about in two ways. Either the Fed sees that prices are spiking because I need bricks, you need bricks, and we're all bidding up the price of bricks, and so they slam on the monetary brake in order to uh, decrease the amount of inflation, or we simply run out of bricks and we have a real resource crunch. And so, when we look at the 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 upper turning point of the business cycle, this crunch phase, it has elements of both in, in each case, right so there's a, a resource crunch, and then there's a credit crunch. The question is is which one is the the first and which one is second right but it, they're they're both there always, and so when this occurs, we see this mad scramble for these resources, and that pushes up the short term rate because I just need to get those bricks to finish that housing right now, because if I don't, it's all just for waste.
1: I guess the the element of it, and you alluded to it when you gave the initial introductory explanation, that normally when people talk about Austrian business cycle theory, especially if they're explaining it to a lay audience, they'll just talk about the interest rate Mm -hmm. and say, oh, the you know the central bank or the banking system under the leadership of the central bank floods the market with unbacked credit that artific- pushes our interest rates down to artificially low levels that causes a boom then they realize for whatever reason they want to switch course they slam the brakes that makes the interest rate spike mm-hmm. and then the entrepreneurs realize oh no we can't complete our projects and layoffs ensue and so forth and so yeah the insight to like relate it to this empirical pattern is to realize well no there's not just the interest rate and so then if you ask which types of interest rates does the federal reserve in the us have more control over just what everyone's going to say the shorter term ones that if the fed slams the brakes that's going to cause short rates to change more than 30 year rates and so that if you just tran- you know once you incorporate that little subtlety into the standard austrian story it totally fits that yeah during an expansionary boom when the fed pushes down interest rates it'd be on the short end so that would make sense that short you know short rates are lower than long rates in in fact long rates might even go up if they're just pumping a bunch of money in cuz people build in higher inflation expectations that,
0: that's a little bit of the uh, case too yeah
1: so um and then you know the flip side when they slam on the brakes that would tend to have you know a, more of an impact in the you know short term okay so so again that that pattern fits that you would see a quote normal yield curve during an expansionary boom in the austrian taxonomy mm-hmm. and that and the, the other thing paul is um What's funny, like when you ask this standard Keynes, like when Paul Krugman writes on the yield curve, the explanation he gives is that, um, and here it's not like he's inventing that this is standard in this literature, Mm -hmm. but the you know so there's different theories as to 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 explain this pattern, and the one that he latches onto, like in his New York Times columns and his blog, is that oh people see a recession's coming, so they forecast that soon in the future the Fed's going to slash rates because, you know, that, you know, we'll be in a recession and everybody knows when there's a recession, the Fed cuts rates, sh- short term rates. Mm-hmm. And so that's why now, rationally looking ahead, we forecast that short rates are going to plummet. So that's why long rates right now start dropping. And so that would explain, if that were true, yes, that would show right, like a little bit before you enter a mm-hmm. bad recession, you would see long rates plummet and then the yield curve would invert. Yeah, but that's not what happens. But empirically, that's not what you see. Yeah. You, you see that what tends to happen is right before a crash, the short rate zooms up above the long Absolutely. rate. The long rate doesn't come down until once the crash is underway.
0: Absolutely, yeah. The long rates don't move all that much at all. Um, so, so, yeah, he's got his empirics wrong.
1: Uh, well, I just think he didn't even check. I think he – in other words, yeah. well, he didn't have enough subtlety or nuance. If all you had to look at was a chart of the spread, like like if you went to the Fred data and mm-hmm. did ten year minus three month, and you would see, yep, right before recessions that uh, what goes goes negative, yep. and then his theory would make sense of that. But then when you decompose it and look at the you know the level of the ten year and the level of the three month, then then you see, oh wait, no, yeah, going into a recession, it's not that the ten year collapses; it's that the three month spikes, which again is totally consistent with the Austrian story that. It's the you know monetary authorities slamming on the brakes and causing you know a, a tightening of credit
0: that is what right tips us. Well, I think we've moved into a new a new monetary regime uh, with the Fed and how they are manipulating the yield curve because they have done target asset purchases. They have done this quantitative easing. They are fully aware of of the signal and. They are trying to prevent the yield curve from inverting because they think that if they can stop the signal, they can stop the recession, uh, which, which is just mm-hmm. just crazy. And so what the, uh, the Federal Reserve has done is it has taken right. the reserve ratio, right, the reserve requirements that they've asked banks to hold on to, and they've plummeted it all the way down to zero. And so the reserve ratio is currently at zero, and it's been that way since, since March of, of 2020. So that means the money multiplier isn't, you know, a hundred. It's, it's theoretically infinity. And so then they've pushed just tremendous amounts of money into the system. And so now what they're doing is they are applying interest. They're giving interest to banks just on their, on their deposits at the Fed. And so that's called uh, interest on reserve balances. And so the, the banks have all of this extra cash, and it kind of places. So, if we're looking at the, the loanable funds market, it places a floor underneath the banks, and so and so the banks aren't even really active in the Fed funds market anymore because they're so flush with cash. And so, what we really see happening today is the Fed has opened up the Fed funds market to other non-bank institutions. So. Money market mutual funds, uh, some government-sponsored enterprises such as Fannie and Freddie, they're all able to get into the Fed funds market. And so the Fed now is able to control both the quantity of money in this market through non-borrowed reserves, and it's placed a floor for banks, but a ceiling for these non-bank institutions. And then it places underneath this, um, well... What these non bank institutions are going to do is that they're going to, they can't deposit money at the Fed like a bank, but they play a game. And so they created a system as if they can deposit money at the bank and get interest on it at the Fed. And that is our overnight repurchase agreements. And so the overnight repurchase agreement that the Fed sets is now the floor of the Fed funds rate. And that currently sits at, Uh, 5.05%. The interest on reserve balances is currently at 5.15%. So there's a a 10 uh, 10 basis point differential there. And so the effective Fed funds rate sits right in between at 5.08. And so the Fed is able to tightly control the price, the interest rate, and the quantity through non-borrowed reserves, of this market, and they think that they've solved the interest rate problem. They think that they've solved uh, the yield curve, and they think that they've solved business cycles. But as you and I both know, there are secondary consequences to all of this sort of of infusion of cash, and it has to go somewhere. Now, in the last recession in two thousand seven, two thousand eight, two thousand nine, it went into uh, ba- uh, into um, mortgages and mortgage-backed securities and, and housing and such. But this time, it's much more diffuse. It's spread all over, right? So you've got some of the money in in housing and you've got banks, because they're not putting it, you know, they're not loaning it out. They're just investing it. And so some of them are investing it in crypto. And we see that with um, Silicon Valley Bank. And so what we see is that there's not just a bubble like we saw in, in 2007, but there's a lot of bubbles out there, and it's it's pretty big. It's pretty huge.
1: Well, well, sure. I mean, partly just because if you graph, you know, how much in reserves did the Fed pump in, or you want to look at the Fed's balance sheet, you know, different metrics. What they did, you know, following the '08 crisis was unprecedented, in the sense that like they basically doubled the balance sheet in a few months. But then now, what they did, you know, back in 2020 and following is even dwarfed what they did back in 2008. So um, certainly, can you, you alluded to this early on, but now that we've given more the the basics for people, so can you just, again, why are we talking about this right now that currently, so the, the yield curve is currently inverted and it's not just that, oh, it happens to be inverted, but the severity of it or the magnitude, the degree to which the short end, yield is higher than the, the long end can you just uh, speak again to that now that people have a better sure. framework to understand the significance sure. so
0: so the the short end as we know was basically zero for an extended period of time and they've just been pumping money pumping money pumping money and now the uh, the fed has slammed on the monetary break or is trying to this but it's very very difficult because you have a congress that is absolutely out of control with their fiscal policy. They're just spending, 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 and they don't have the money to cover it. And so you have bonds that they're issuing in order to make that that covered. But no one's buying our bonds. The Chinese aren't buying our bonds. Russia's not buying our bonds. No one's buying our bonds. So who's buying it? It's the Fed. So the Fed, on one hand, is increasing the money supply through monetizing the debt, and at the same time, trying to bring in, um, you know, inflation through raising interest rates. And so um, it's raised these interest rates up over 5% right now. And as a result, we see an inverted yield curve that hasn't, we haven't seen anything like this since uh, the summer of 1981. Um, so it's it's been a very, very long time. So it's, what, over 40 years since we've seen it this out of whack.
1: Yes. Yeah, so... I'm curious your thoughts. about So I've had some correspondents contact me, you know, knowing that I've done work. By the way, folks for listening to this podcast, so we'll put a link. Is there a link to your dissertation somewhere? There along? is,
0: absolutely. It's at Mises.org, okay. and they can just type in my name, and it will okay. come up, and there's a link to it and all of that.
1: Okay. I'll, also, on this, the show notes for this episode of the Human Action Pocket, we'll, I'll give a specific link, folks, to, to make sure you can. But, but in addition, I'll put um, my... Understanding Money Mechanics book for the Institute. There's a chapter on this stuff, and so be, be so since some people knew that I was you know into this topic, they've been contacting me and saying, Bob, I don't know if you've been paying attention, but the yield curve now you know is this was like a couple of months is more inverted than some of them were saying in history, and then you know Paul and I offline recorded probably go you know at least to the early 80s, and so they were wondering like is it just a matter of yes, no, inverted or not, or the severity or the depth of the inversion does that matter? So my, I said, hey, that's a good question. I never thought about it until you just asked me. But my guess would be because I'm lining it up qualitatively with the degree of intervention from the central bank that I would think, yeah, other things equal. The more inverted in a sense that would kind of show that the bigger the preceding credit boom was and then you know to switch over and slam the brakes that that mismatch was bigger, that would cause the, you know, the, te- the temporary inversion to, to go the most.
0: How do you feel about that? No, <laughs> no. Okay.
1: Good. Well, see, this is, a, we get some yeah. clash. Good. Okay. So explain um, why.
0: Okay. So the, I don't think the size of the boom has to equal the size of the crash or uh, is an indication of the duration of a recession. And so if we look at the crash in 1929, um, under under Hoover, well, their policies, both Hoover and FDR, took a recession that was milder than the preceding one in 1920-21 and turned it into the Great Depression. The crash in 1920 started in January of 1920, uh, and then we were out by July of 1921. So, what was the difference? Well, the difference was on the policy after the crash. And so the policy after the crash happened where in Hoover and FDR there was intervention, intervention, intervention. They would not allow uh, businesses to declare bankruptcy. They would not allow the uh, mess-aligned capital to be sold off and then re, uh, uh, you know, re-slotted into the structure of production. They, they would not allow the, the normal liquidation process to occur. In contrast to that, we see the 1920 um 21 recession, and who was president in 1920? Well, that's Woodrow Wilson, right? Progressive Woodrow Wilson. You're like, wait a minute, Progressive Woodrow Wilson? Yeah. So what's the story here? Well, in 1918, the Republicans took control of the Congress, and they said, our spending, and you can look up these numbers, but it's roughly they were spending something like $18 million and they had revenues of just under $6 million. And so then when the recession hit, they balanced the budget. And so they did that by cutting spending to under $6 million and they had revenue of just over $6 million. And through, and you're like, wait, how would Woodrow Wilson do that? Well, Woodrow Wilson suffered a stroke. And so he was completely, you know, just drooling into his pillow uh, and wasn't on, you know, protesting this. And so by, by getting government out of the way, by scaling down the size and scope of government intervention, by scaling back the spending, by pulling them out of, uh, out of the economy, they allowed the liquidation process to occur. And then you see that, that the recovery, we were out of it in 18 months. So when Warren Harding was sworn in and president uh, in March of, of 21, right? It was just March until July, right? So he really didn't have much, although he claims all the credit. And so if we look at at our recessions today, can we take a recession and make it much, much worse? And the answer is absolutely. We can make it deeper. We can make it longer. We can mess it up. Now, one other economic caveat is when we look at capital from an Austrian point of view, we know that some types of capital are substitutable but other types of capital are complementary in the structure production. So I can be building tables, and so I can be uh, knocking down trees and lumberjacks or taking them to the sawmill. I can have a lot of demand for tables in the consumer market. But if I only have one sawmill, you see there's a bottleneck in that supply chain. And so the problem is, is that there's there's capital specificity that we need in order to convert the lumber into the tables that people want and so it's not just what type of capital or i mean how much capital it's what type of capital we have now some types of capital are kind of easy to rearrange and so if we look at the dot-com bubble in um in 2000 well who got hit well the dot-com bubble you can take a a programmer from pets.com and now i can move them over into some other thing like espn.com and, and that delay, that, that transfer of skills and, and equipment isn't too, too messy. But if I'm looking at something like housing or other goods that are not substitutable, then that readjustment process might take quite a long time. So when we see that the, the auto manufacturers in 2008 were having problems, right? What are you going to do with, uh, with uh, you know, these presses, you know, and these big dyes that, that stamp metal parts, right? You can't convert that into a dot com industry, right? So so the, the type of capital can help determine the length and the depth of a recession. Now, that being said, government can always make it worse.
1: Okay. Yeah, we're actually not in disagreement on that. I agree with you, like and I, I was when I talk about the great depression a lot of times people you'll hear them like fans of the Austrian schools like, Oh, the, the fed caused the great depression. And you're right. Like I'll, I'll be anal and say, well, no, technically the fed caused like the stock market crash of 29. If you want to say that. And you know, the, the, the slump, the great contraction is, you know, how they call it in the early thirties. But the reason, yeah, the thing lingered on for a decade is because of what Hoover did first and then FDR up the ante. Absolutely. Um, so I, I agree with you on that, but I guess, so this time around though, if like the the shock to the system though in some sense could be proportional to the degree of the credit malfeasance given that i don't think the biden administration is going to have a radical privatization and tax cut plan <laughs> that kicks well, in
0: he might be drooling he might be drooling in his pillow just like wilson right?
1: <laughs> right 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 right, yeah he's just trying to reproduce the uh the the good effects uh, right so i, I I'll just, you know, to give people new, and again, you know, you can answer this with whatever caveats you want. So I've been saying, and I'm just just reading the, the, the big picture numbers that, yeah, I, and I make this qualification too. I say, I don't know that, like, if you tune into CNBC, they'll know we're in a recession by December. But I think, you know, two years from now, looking back, they will classify and say that, yes, either by the end of this calendar year or early, what, 2024, a recession will have officially begun, and I personally think it's going to be a deep one. Yeah. You know the way they judge these things. Are are you okay with that, or do you do you think that we that we really shouldn't be speaking with such specificity? Well,
0: look the the longer the bubble, right, and the more that we pump up the bubble, right, the more misallocation and malinvestment can occur, right. And so we know that the stuff is misaligned. We know this just by looking around us, right? You, you look at the unemployment rate of what, 3.4, 3.5%. And yet you go to a restaurant and they're understaffed, right? Now um, you go to, you go to uh, Home Depot and they're understaffed and, and you go to, go to stores and their stuff's still not on the shelves. It's like, I, I thought we were beyond all of this, and so there are these supply chain interruptions, and, you, and so it's not just just, it, but there's there's a misallocation, right? So in this structure production, it's it's out of whack now. By how much, I don't know, and where exactly, we can't know that until after the fact, because you know, it would sort of be like like saying, oh, that's new money, right? You, you can't tell the new money from the old money. And in the same way, I can't say, well, that that's a pros- business prospect that only is occurring because of Fed monetary policy. Otherwise, it wouldn't. Have, you know, I, I can't make that sort of differentiation until after the fact. Now, once we we see this this uh, downturn occurring, that's when our our political economy side kicks in, where it says, okay, so what what have the uh, the politicians done in the past? Well. They've engaged in strong fiscal policy. They have engaged in policies that um, prop up failing businesses, and they stop liquidation. And we can then use history, such as the uh, 1990s in Japan, to see how they chose the path that would not allow bailout or would not allow bankruptcies, and instead they were just continuously bailing them out. And as a result, what happened was they they created an anemic recovery Then Obama in 2008 did pretty much the same path. And so when we went down, we don't just bounce back and then grow again. We stay down and then we continue our slow anemic growth after that. And so by these policies that the politicians are doing, we can, we can predict the length and duration and the severity of it. Right? So if they don't allow, um, bankruptcies, if they don't allow capital to be re then and and they keep propping up failing businesses, they're just going to make a bad situation much worse.
1: Yeah, so uh, I'm in agreement with you on that one. And unfortunately, we may get to see a textbook demonstration of how bad monetary policy interacting with bad fiscal and regulatory policy can (laughs) yield really bad outcomes. Uh, So with that uh, encouraging note, Uh, Paul, thank Mm -hmm. you for being uh, a guest on the podcast.
0: Bob, it was fantastic. I really enjoyed it.
1: Thank you for coming, and uh, thanks, everyone, for tuning in, and we will see you next
0: time. Check back next week for a new episode of the Human Action Podcast. In the meantime, you can find more content like this on Mises.org.